you want to give love to the city, that's a fact. But you're going to need help if you want to make an impact. Well endowed, you want to be well endowed with the Edmonton community. Things really happen when you find that you're well endowed. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Well Endowed Podcast. I'm Elizabeth Bonkink. And I'm Andrew Paul. This podcast is brought to you by Edmonton Community Foundation, and we are a proud affiliate member of the Alberta Podcast Network. Edmonton is full of generous donors who've created endowment funds at ECF. These funds are carefully stewarded to generate money that supports charities in Edmonton and beyond. On this podcast, we share stories about how these funds help strengthen our community, because it's good to be well endowed. On this episode, we talk about our most recent vital topic, the effects of intersectionality on making ends meet in Edmonton. Intersectionality is the cumulative way in which the effects of multiple forms of discrimination overlap or intersect, especially in the experiences of marginalized individuals or groups. Our correspondent Emily Rendell Watson spoke with three Edmontonians to find out what kinds of obstacles people who experience multiple forms of discrimination must overcome just to make ends meet. Intersectionality is the cumulative way in which multiple forms of discrimination overlap or intersect, especially for those who are marginalized. It's a term that was introduced by Kimberly Crenshaw, a legal scholar and civil rights activist. How intersectionality impacts people's abilities to make ends meet in our city is our latest vital science topic, exploring the income gap, systemic discrimination, employment challenges, and more. I spoke to three Edmontonians about their experiences with intersectionality and what it means to them. The first, Neka Otubolu, is the Director of Communications and Equity Strategy at the Edmonton Community Foundation. Intersectionality used to be a lived reality before it became a term. So it's a framework that takes into consideration people's overlapping identities and experiences. This is in order to understand the complexities of discrimination that they face in their everyday lives. The theory clarifies that individuals are often disadvantaged by multiple sources of oppression. These multiple sources could be in form of their race or class, um, age, gender, orientation or identity, like for example, I'm a black woman, so that's my identity. And being black and being a woman does not exist independently of each other. So how does intersectionality impact you? In my everyday life, like um, working and being a black woman, sometimes I feel unseen, if I could use that word or misunderstood. I could give you a scenario. I took my daughter for her driving test. And um, when we got there, I wanted her to start adulting. So I told her to go first with her ID, start the conversation and stuff. But I saw her being ignored most of the time and actually requesting for clarifications that were not given to her. So I stepped up to the counter to ask for help. I was told, oh, you don't need to yell. We can hear you. And I was like, I'm not yelling. Just this is the tone of my voice. And they kept saying, yeah, but you have a loud tone. Could you just tone that down a bit? 
it was really embarrassing for me and my daughters especially because at that time we were the only colored people in the space in the room at that time and we saw them actually attending to other people in a more cordial manner when it came to time for payment they kept asking if we could afford to pay for the test it was kind of there was this perception of are you sure you can afford to pay this and i said yes um, my daughter can afford to pay she works and she'll pay with her debit card so this is just an example of some of the discrimination that i face every day living in edmonton why is it so important to talk about these experiences and be aware of how intersectionality impacts people it is important because it's crucial to social equity work. It's good to have conversations about the differences in experiences among people with different overlapping identities. This is because without an intersectional lens, events or movements that aim to address injustice towards one group may just end up propagating or prolonging systems of inequities towards another group. Okay. So if we think in particular about intersectionality in terms of making ends meet, this vital topic and, and how it impacts that, what are some examples of how intersectionality can influence people's ability to do that? A good example will be the gender pay gap. Because when we broadly discuss how the pay gap for women is shrinking. For example, as the Vital Sign report stated, in Edmonton in 2019, women earned 71 cents to every dollar that was earned by men. But in that narration or report, the experiences of minority women are erased. But basically we know racialized women and less than white women. They're also more likely to be underemployed and hold jobs that are not reflected of, of their experience and education. So in terms of your own experience about pay and, and job searching, what has that been like for you in Edmonton? Not in Edmonton. I haven't experienced that um, personally in Edmonton. But yes, I have experienced that in my previous work oh, years ago. I was working in the banking sector and... I was working in commercial banking unit that was highly uh, male dominated. And one day one of my colleagues walked up to me to, to ask a question about his pay package, though it was supposed to be confidential, but he needed some clarification on some of his um, earnings and benefits and stuff like that. And he felt I will be the one to give him the best advice. So he reached out to me. And he had to show me his pay stub. And while looking at it, I found out that I was, we were actually in the same, we were at par. We were recruited at the same time, the same level. We had grown through the system at the same rate. Um, I was earning 30% less than he was. Over the length of my career, I've seen this, you know, present itself. I've seen a lot of articles about it. I've seen some stats about it. But what I noticed more in Canada is that the stats talks about the disparity in gender pay when it comes to women in general. So really, we don't have stats to show uh, the experiences of minority women. 
you mentioned you have kids. Do you worry about how this is going to impact them and, and their ability to, you know, make a life for themselves in Edmonton or really anywhere else? Oh, yes, I do. I do worry about it. My first two are girls, very hardworking. Most of the time they ask me questions like, why can't they ask for this? Or why is it that they can't stay out till it's dark? Or why do I worry so much about coming home when it's dark with the transit system? And I tell them because from the news I see and the report I hear, you know, we're first generational immigrants to Canada. We are black. And even though we haven't had that experience personally, we belong to a group of people that interact every day and we learn from their experiences. Right. And so I go like, if you're going to be going out, if you're on a train or a bus and it's dark, just have, just have your phone handy, pepper spray, have me on speed dial or 911 if you need help. And I feel worried that I have to do this constantly and always put my kids on the guard because there's that possibility that they would go to the mall or be on a bus and be verbally or physically attacked because of the color of their skin or their gender, right? So that worries me and is part of the reason why I do the diversity, equity, and inclusion work that I do in the community because I see Edmonton's community being a very diverse one and we need to be able to create that safe neighborhood for our children to thrive in. Something else that worries me is that when they grow and if we still keep having this disparity in pay, they might feel so demotivated <laughs> working in some spaces. I, I just feel it's not just fair. My wish is that, you know, a lot of organizations and our community come to understand the importance of having the intersectional lens in everything we do every day. That was Neka Otubalu, Director of Communications and Equity Strategy at the Edmonton Community Foundation. When I spoke to Neka, she told me that I needed to hear from a woman named Dunia Nur. Dunia works with and runs programs for people who experience the effects of intersectionality in her role as president of the African-Canadian Civic Engagement Council. And she also knows firsthand about the discrimination and challenges marginalized people in our city face. Here's Dunia. I am a Muslim woman of African descent. My heritage is Somali, and I came to Canada at a very young age. I started elementary from here. My family originally lived in Somalia. When you immigrated to Canada, I know you were pretty young, but do you remember some of the challenges that your family experienced when you first arrived, whether that was to do with language barriers or recertification of credentials or what was that like for your family? Like, to be honest, I was very, very young, so I don't even have that much memory what I could say is growing up in Canada and through my adolescent years, I did see that my mom, she was always an active person and she, she was always active in our lives. Uh, she definitely struggled with navigating the school system, ensuring that we're academically excelling, ensuring that, you know, she put us in recreation. She came across a lot of challenges. There wasn't that much support and understanding, especially her being a survivor 
of a civil war, losing two of her children because two of my brothers died in the civil war. So I, she never had the opportunity to really grieve. She was just functioning in a way that I just want my children to survive, make sure they have food to eat. She was that typical parent that would work like two jobs, take care of the family back home, take care of the people here. And uh, that's literally how I grew up throughout my whole life is just seeing my mom working very, very hard every day and not have time to herself. Um, she definitely had challenges, but she she's a fierce woman. So she's always done the best that she knew how and she could when it comes to advocating for us in systems such as the school system mostly. Some of those challenges you mentioned, how did those affect your family's earnings or ability to get by? Yeah, so my mom actually, she fluently was literate and spoke fluently Somali. English was very foreign to her. It was her first time being in a country that she had no clue of. She had a lot of cultural shocks, such as just adjusting to the seasons and then adjusting to racism and discrimination of being a woman and Muslim and Black at the same time and being visibly Muslim because she wears a hijab. And she had to learn English and she would be working from like 6 a.m. all the way till like 5 p.m. And then from there on, she would start to go to English classes at 6.30. She definitely worked in jobs like daycare, washing dishes with uh, one of our schools that she worked at. Typically, when immigrant families are new, the jobs that they have direct access to is that, you know, frontline labor intensive jobs. And that's exactly what my mom took on. And that's how we were raised. How did that impact her and your family? I think it definitely impacted her mental health simply because my mom, you see, she came from a very established family. And one day the way she describes it is she had it all. And then the next day they had nothing and they were seen as a refugee and they were displaced in a foreign land. So when you have everything and, and I mean, you live in a huge land of acres and you have drivers and you have tutors and your brothers are international students and your father is able body and he's a strong man who's highly you know regarded. And then all of a sudden you end up being a mother of two daughters that you have to raise. You're separated from your husband and your youngest daughter because of immigration reasons. And then you have to figure out how to feed both of the families and still put food on the table. And at the same time, you know, learn quickly, adapt quickly. I would say that definitely had a huge toll on her. I didn't realize how much my mom had to sacrifice and many of the barriers that she went through until I was 18 years old. And what happens typically, especially for first generation, second generation youth that are from immigrant families, we end up taking that burden on ourselves. And sometimes we even feel guilty. The fact that our parents are, you know, experiencing pretty much all the stuff, all the nasty stuff that society puts them through and bearing the brunt of all of the discrimination, racism, xenophobia, and them being newcomers, not speaking English properly, or even if they do having like a strong accent, right? I've always watched her struggles and I wanted to reciprocate a lot of the, you know, supports that she puts around me. So one of the first things I did is I tried to get a job to alleviate some of her financial barriers at the age of 14 years old, right? My mom was more like, look, just focus on you. Don't worry about me. I feel like when I think about her, she's like a symbol of hope and resiliency and she's also a symbol of humility because my mother is a strong, brilliant, powerful woman. 
And what she reminds me all the time is just, you know, sometimes you wake up one day and you have it all and you wake up the next day and you have nothing and you're in a foreign country and you are confused. Can you talk a little bit about how these experiences and your upbringing, how it motivated you to take on your your current role as president of the African-Canadian Civic Engagement Council? I pretty much you know, develop court support programs, immigration advocacy programs, gender-based support programs for women and children. And we, we run a lot of things. And honestly, it was motivated by some of my own experience of protective factors that kept me alive, you know, exposures that I never had the opportunity to really how do I say, risk factors, pretty much. So if you look at like ASACs, uh, the African Canadian Civic Engagement Council's mandate is to protect and promote people of African descent's dignity and human rights. That's two things that's very important. One of the main programs that we have is like youth services, supporting youth in courts. We have a housing program that's stabilization that has four beds for youth that are experiencing mental health crisis or addiction or are feeling targeted in the streets. We have Employment and Life Skills Program, which is the Black Ecosystem Project, which is a $2.3 million. We also have a a Women and Gender Equality Program that specifically focuses on culturally sensitive programs and advocacy for women and children who are survivors of sexual violence, war crimes, domestic violence, structural violence, hate-motivated crimes. We provide services in terms of clinical therapy, connection to housing, income support, mental health support, employment, recreation. Why is the work that you do important from an intersectional lens? It's important because the supports that a Black man would need, especially an older man, is different than a Black youth, which is also different than a Black woman. And then the supports that a Black woman who is Muslim would need, it's different also than a Black woman who's from the LGBTQ plus community. So it's very important to take all of those considerations, all of those, um, you know, intersections into consideration when providing adequate support. The supports that people that are, you know, refugee or asylum seekers need is different than uh, what Black Canadians who have status would need. So that's why it's very important to take all those multi-layered barriers that people overcome, including a lot of the clients that come to us, some are able body and some are not. So we take all those into consideration and it's the individual that states what they need. They give us the full consent All of our program is voluntary based and we are very sensitive to all of the social issues and uh, the leadership of ASAC, including the staff, embody those identities as well of the demographics that they're supporting. That was Dunia Nur, president of the African-Canadian Civic Engagement Council. Finally, I'd like to reintroduce you to Carly Drew, whose voice may sound familiar from our vital signs topic on millennials and technology. She's a disabled writer, creator, consultant, and activist. And we talked about the income challenges for people with disabilities, gender-based discrimination, and much more. Take a listen. So I have a disability called spinal muscular atrophy, which is a movement disorder. And it's the only life I've ever known. So it's a little hard to compare what life would be like if I wasn't. A disabled woman, um, intersectionality determines how I interact with the entire world, not just my identity, but all of my relationships. 
my career, my interests. I put a lot of extra thought into safety and opportunities, whether or not they are possible for me. Okay, so when you talk about safety, one of the areas that the vital signs topic touched on was about how women with a disability are more likely to have experienced both inappropriate sexualized behavior and gender-based discrimination than women without a disability. Is that something that rings true for you? Yes, absolutely. And I think I didn't realize that until I was older because there was a stereotype about disabled people being like non-sexualized but in reality we're so often fetishized that it is like dangerous dating as a disabled woman it is almost like people are achievement hunters and looking to fulfill some kind of weird fantasy and they get inappropriate and I even had men say things like you wouldn't be able to fight back what are you gonna do how do you handle those situations or, or what do you do a lot of it is avoidance I guess I'm not too comfortable around men in general when I'm around a new man or meet a new man I'm extra cautious whether it's professional or otherwise. And there's always subtle indicators that kind of give it away. What about jobs and, you know, employment? How has intersectionality in terms of being a disabled woman impacted your ability to make ends meet? I don't think most employers expect for me to ask to be paid what I think I am actually worth. But I do find that women employers or queer employers, they are a lot better. Like, that. They don't treat me as subhuman as often. Like, in some places, it's still legal to pay a disabled person less than minimum wage. And I honestly can't believe that. The other thing we need to consider is what we will call the disability tax. It's a lot more expensive to live as a disabled person than it is for anyone else. Can you tell me a bit more about that? Yeah, so as an example, a lot of disabled people can't cook for ourselves. So we need to buy takeout or prepared meals, which are a lot more expensive than cooking on our own. In terms of care, is that fully subsidized or are you also paying for some a portion of that? Well, right now because of COVID, I don't have any. It's just my parents. But normally they only cover a very small amount of hours. I think last time they tried to give me four hours a week, even though I need 24 hours a day. If we only actually put money into that, we could be making our own money easier. 
So when you think about how things could be improved, I know that there's a a vast number of areas where uh, improvement is needed, but where do we need to start? Yeah, I think it's a multi-layered, but I think universal basic income would be huge for all marginalized people, especially because programs like age penalize you for working instead of helping you work. For so long, the working force has wanted to prioritize non-disabled straight white men kind of at the top of the hierarchy. And so I think we've forgotten how to make space for everyone. That was Edmonton's Carly Drew, a disabled writer, creator, consultant, and activist. As you've heard, intersectionality can impact people in many different ways, including how they're able to make a life for themselves here. We should all look at how systemic discrimination plays a role in our city and have the conversations necessary to continue the work to make Edmonton safer, more sustainable for people to live in, and welcoming to everyone. Thanks for listening. I'm Emily Rendell-Watson. Thanks very much to Emily Rendell-Watson for bringing us this story. And a big thanks to Neka Otobulu, Dunya Nur, and Carly Drew for sharing their experiences with us. And if you would like a lot of useful statistics and numbers to learn more about the effects of intersectionality on making ends meet in Edmonton, head on over to our show notes for a link to this vital topic so you can check it out. And while you're there, don't forget to check out our upcoming granting deadlines to see if you could be eligible for funding, or to find out how to start an endowment fund of your own. Well, that brings us to the end of the show. Thanks so much for sharing your time with us. We appreciate it. If you enjoyed the show, share it with everyone you know. And if you have time, leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. Those reviews help new listeners find our show. You can also find us on Facebook, where you can share your thoughts and see some pictures. Thanks again for tuning in. We've been your hosts, Elizabeth Bonking. And Andrew Paul. Until Until next time. The Well Endowed Podcast is produced by Edmonton Community Foundation. And is an affiliate member of the Alberta Podcast Network. The show is edited by Lisa Pruden. You can visit our website at thewellendowedpodcast.com. Subscribe to us on iTunes. And follow us on Twitter at the ECF. Our theme music is by Octavo Productions. And as always, don't forget to visit Edmonton Community Foundation at ecfoundation.org. Well Endowed.